says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. Sorry, I'm having trouble seeing that there. <laughs> Who found we're of the way. Happens to some of you too, right? <laughs> My. Whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And Father, we just humbly ask for your help as we continue now to worship you and your son Jesus in the power and ministry of your spirit by opening the word of God. We ask that every thought and intent and purpose behind why your spirit inspired this portion of the word of God would find its proper place into our heart this morning, right where we're at in our life. We ask you would prepare us, Lord, give us an ear to hear and a heart that's receptive and that we would willingly, Lord, desire to hear what you're trying to speak to us and be responsive to it. So bless your word and speak by your spirit's ministry, we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, typically when things are broken, their value then decreases. But the interesting thing is that in God's economy, when a person is broken their value actually increases. And really in the passage we're looking at this morning, we see that in our text. We see the life of this man Saul and he is broken by the Lord. The Spirit of God intervenes into his life. The presence of Jesus shines upon him in a powerful way and the Lord breaks this stubborn hard-hearted, sort of just, you know, adamant man who was sort of on his trajectory and just genuinely needed to be broken by the Lord. But it actually causes Saul's value to be increased. His value as a person, his value before the Lord is greatly increased by being broken by the Lord. The background, of course, remember, the early church has just endured a time of severe persecution where those particularly religious leaders and those in the land who opposed the work of Christ were causing severe mistreatment and punishment for their beliefs. And as a result of that persecution, we saw recently in Acts that the church in Jerusalem there, many of the believers were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and were pushed out to other regions. And wherever they went, they preached the gospel and people were coming to know Jesus. And one of the main leaders of that harsh, severe persecution we saw was a man named Saul 
who our text focuses in on this morning. Who was Saul in his backdrop? Let me just give you a little idea as we look at his life this morning. Saul, we know, was born in Tarsus, which was an area of Cilicia. Uh, he was born in a free city of the, of the Romans, which gave him Roman citizenship. His mother and father were both Jews, which means he also by nature was a Jew. And that's why later Paul refers to himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he was a Jewish man, but yet had Roman citizenship. His education began in the schools of Tarsus, where he learned the ways of the Greeks and Greek poetry and Greek philosophy, but then later was sent to Jerusalem, where there he could study the things of divinity and understand the Mosaic law and the Jewish customs. His tutor, we know, was a famous rabbi named Gamaliel one of the most famous rabbis in that day in Israel's history. And Saul, we're told historically, was a diligent student who excelled in learning. Gamaliel himself said that it was difficult to give him enough to keep him occupied to keep learning. So he was someone who was zealous to learn the customs of Judaism. He became a radical and devoted Pharisee, keeping the religious traditions of the Jews and the religious traditions of the Pharisees became part of the Sanhedrin, that religious supreme court, as we've talked about, that was there in Israel, one of the highest ranking bodies in uh, Israel's religious life. And Saul despised, as many of the Pharisees and many of the Sanhedrin, Saul despised anything that did not align with the religious system of Judaism. And anything outside of that, he saw as an enemy and a threat, and he wrongly believed, like many in this time period, he wrongly believed that Jesus was not the Messiah, that he was not the Son of God. Instead, he, like many of the Jews and the religious leaders, thought that Jesus was just a blasphemous, radical rabbi who needed to be stopped who needed to be removed before he caused any further confusion and rebellion. Saul first came to prominence, we saw really back in chapter 8, at the murder of the Lord's servant, Stephen, who was preaching truth about Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, remember, it says that the, the people dragged him out of the city and literally stoned him to death. He was murdered by stoning. And it says that Saul, as a young man, was there at that time, not only watching, but to some degree participating and actually enjoying watching this servant of Christ being put to death. And it seems this almost kind of sparked like a bloodthirst in Saul to become more intense in his persecution. It almost intensified his hatred of Christianity and Christians. And in chapter 8, we see him leading the way in the persecution against Christians. Chapter 8, verse 3 says that Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Now, as we come to chapter 9, after an interim, we come back to the events of this intense persecutor, Saul. Look at verse one again. It says, then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So our scene opens here showing the ongoing hatred 
and venomous animosity that Saul held towards followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's evidenced very clearly here how he sought to do everything he can in his power to stop and to resist them. First, take notice, interestingly enough, in verses 1 and 2, I don't want to overlook it, how the description the Holy Spirit gives to us of these who were followers of Jesus, like many of us are today. Take note, those who were a part of the church, who knew and loved the Lord, had experienced Jesus' salvation. Notice how the Bible, how the Holy Spirit chooses to use some descriptive terms here of those who experienced Jesus' salvation and who were following Jesus. The language in the titles. Take notice, first of all, in verse 1, they are referred to as disciples of the Lord. Disciples of the Lord. A disciple is basically a committed learner, a follower of one's leader or one's master. That's really what the word disciple means. Even outside of Christianity, a disciple is a committed learner and a follower of a leader or a master who seeks to continually learn more and more of their master's beliefs, of their leader's ways of life so that they would not just have that information intellectually so that they could live in the same manner as their master, that they wanted to fully embrace their master's beliefs and practices so that they could follow their master's way of life and their master's practices. So how interesting that the Holy Spirit refers to followers of Christ and those who are saved here in verse one as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that word disciples is actually the main term, the primary term used to refer to God's children throughout the book of Acts. The word Christians shows up a few times. The word believers shows up a few times, but the predominant word the Holy Spirit uses regarding the early church and followers of Christ is disciples. That's the main term that's used. And those of us who claim to be Christians and have experienced Jesus' salvation, that's, I think, purposeful because we should be living as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just those who believe certain things about Jesus theologically, we should be living as disciples of the Lord. That is, committed followers of Jesus. Those who have a strong desire to understand the ways of Jesus and what Jesus says is right and wrong and how Jesus lived out his life because we want to emulate, follow his way of life. We want to live as his disciples, as him being our master. Surely we believe, but we also should greatly desire to follow. First John chapter 2 Verse 6 says that we ought to walk just as Jesus walked. That's pretty simple. We ought to walk just as Jesus walked. Take notice as well, a second term we see in verse 2 there that describes the church family. It also refers to him there in verse 2 as those, look at it, who were of the way. That's an interesting term. They were referred to those who were of the way. Now, interesting to consider where that title came from and maybe why it got attached to disciples of the Lord and followers of Christ. Remember, Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way exclusively. I am the way, 
the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, Jesus communicated as they were saying, just show us God and show us the way to get into heaven. Jesus said, I, I personally, I am the way. If you've seen me, you've seen God because I'm revealing God in human flesh among you and I am the way exclusively, the doorway to enter into heaven to be with a father. It's not through a practice or a system or it's through a person. It's through Jesus who was the way to have relationship with God and Jesus is the way to enter into heaven, claiming that reality. So interesting that his followers refer to those who were, it says there, of the way. Perhaps that's the very reason they ultimately assumed that title, that this was a group of people who believed that Jesus was the way to have a relationship with God. People who believed that Jesus was the way to be able to enter into heaven. Maybe in some ways it could refer to how followers of Christ and those who experienced his salvation, you might say, were also on the way. They, they were on the way to heaven. Maybe that's where it came from. Maybe the idea was, hey, we are a group of people, we're of the way because we're on the way to heaven. We're citizens of heaven. We're on a journey here. We're not long-termers. We are on the way. We're en route and ultimately we're pilgrims passing through. We are on the way to heaven. Jesus is the way to get there, but we're all on the way en route because we know one day we're going to arrive in heaven through our faith and trust in him. Or it could as well just kind of infer to how they were following the way of Jesus's life as disciples. Again, being a Christian is not about kind of trying to gather some religion and, and some religiousness to your lifestyle. It's about living a certain way. It's about repenting from the way that you used to live and embracing a new way of living. That is, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, that Christ is in me and I now live for Jesus I've chosen to turn away from the way of the world and my old way, and now I walk in the ways of Christ in a completely different manner. You know, so important to remember because sometimes you know, I, we'll talk to one another, we'll say ourselves, or I'll hear people say, you know, different scenarios. Well, you don't understand this is just the way that I am. And, and I understand it to a degree, but look, as Christians, let us always remember, Jesus didn't save you to keep you the way you are. He saved you to change you. So be careful. Well, this is just the way that I am. Right. That's why you got saved. Because the Lord doesn't want you that way anymore. Right. He wants you to follow his way now. And we're all in process of that experience. But we want to know what a wonderful term there. There were a people who were of the way. I like that of the way of Christ on the way, following the ways of Jesus. Well, that devotion to Jesus's way enraged the religious leaders and that's why verse one here describes particularly Saul, their champion persecutor who had intense hatred even after years at this point of intense havoc against the church and persecution and attacking and arresting the lord's servants and dragging them off to prison here years later verse one says he is still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the lord going and getting letters to incarcerate more believers from as far north as Damascus. That term there, still breathing out threats and murder. The picture there in the language is like a ferocious wild beast or a war horse that would be snorting and breathing heavily, 
because it has a thirst for entering into the battle and just the, the, the carnage and the bloodshed of battle that the war horse would become accustomed to. That's the picture there, the imagery that the Bible gives to Saul, this intense hatred and you know murderous desire. He's, he's enraged, Saul is at this point, consumed with murderous passion to the point where it tells us he actually goes to the high priest and asks for letters, verse 2 says, so that he might go to the synagogues of Damascus, way far north above and outside of Israel. So he gathers like ancient, you might say sort of like ancient search warrants from the high priest, so he has authority, so he can go on a mission as far north as he possibly, just in case anyone of the way kind of migrated all the way out of Israel and went up into Damascus. He wants to go and see if he can find them, to arrest them, it says, bind them, drag them back to Jerusalem as prisoners like criminals so he can further punish them for their commitment to Christ. I mean, the picture here as I look at this is like a man driven, again, my analogy, it's like a man driven with official permission to go eradicate a terror group. That's almost what I see Saul doing here. He has official permission, letters, documents that authorize him. And it's like he is going after, in a certain territory, this group of dangerous terrorists. And they must be stopped. They must be eradicated. They must be punished. And he gets filled with passion and hatred and anger, wanting to do everything he can to not only resist, but eradicate. These people who are of the way and disciples of the Lord with just a cold, cruel, and evil heart. Just a hard-hearted, stubborn man at this point, driven in total deception. But yet, can I bring to your attention, this is the condition of Saul right before he's converted by Christ. Oh, that person. I mean, whoo, I mean... No, other people might get saved, but him, her, look, this is Saul's condition right before he's converted to Christ. You want to talk about a reason to sing amazing grace, the grace of Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to reach into anybody's life. And you want to talk about the awesomeness of the power of the Lord to break into someone's life to capture them for the kingdom of God and turn them around and use that passion to make them a servant of the Lord. Well, look how verse three goes on. It says, as they journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly, he wasn't expecting this, a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus now powerfully interrupts Saul's journey in just total stubborn rebellion and he humbles him tremendously it says here in our text he was close to damascus on the journey that he was on so he left jerusalem for days he's been traveling he's almost at damascus and right before he gets there jesus finally says enough is enough i've given you a lot of leash a lot of great but enough is enough time to time to just humble you in your and so jesus just right before he gets in the city, breaks into this man's life without asking permission. He just breaks right into his life. And it says in verse three there that a light shone around him from heaven. So the Lord turns on the heavenly spotlight 
The stage light from heaven just comes down to earth at this point. Acts 22 and 26, when Saul's recounting his conversion on two other occasions, he refers to this light by saying, I saw a light from heaven that was brighter than the sun. Now think about that. Think about the hot Mideastern noonday sun, how bright and hot that is. And Saul says that light from heaven was brighter than the sun itself in a desert climate. This powerful light shines down and this causes Saul to be overwhelmed. We see him here falling to the ground. This former proud, stubborn, very aggressive, assertive, hard-hearted man, all of a sudden notice he's totally humbled in his tracks. And now we find him forced to his knees, maybe to his face, cowering in fear in weakness it says trembling here at this point in the situation because the light of heaven has just undone this man the divine intervention of god has just utterly overwhelmed him and he's submitted by the power of the lord and he is i'll say wonderfully broken he's wonderfully broken look there's no human being no matter how tough hard stubborn that cannot be humbled by the Lord that cannot be broken in their spirit by the Lord the light of God can shine into a dark life into a hard-hearted heart and bring a person to their knees in submission can bring a person to a place where they are just undone and look here's the reality he's done it for a lot of us right here in this room and he can do it for others he hasn't changed and once humbled he hears this voice speaking to him in verse 4. Look what Jesus says to him. Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So the Lord clearly gets his attention with the bright light from heaven. And then it says he starts to personally address him by name. He begins to speak to him in a personal way. And Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Now, very interesting. Persecuting me? I thought he's been persecuting the church, persecuting followers of Christ. At this time, historically, Jesus has lived, died, been buried, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven. He's not presently on the earth anymore at this point. Yet Jesus said that Saul was persecuting him. The reason is because Jesus is alive and he shares closely with his followers and servants. And more than that, he dwells within us. The Bible tells us Christ is in us, living through us, doing things in partnership with us as his followers. Jesus, when he told the disciples to go out in ministry and to make disciples, he said with that, and I am with you always. So as they're out doing what the Lord's told them to do, Jesus said, I'm going to be with you in the process, cooperating, helping you personally. Therefore, Jesus is so closely attached to his followers to his servants, to his workers, to his ministers, that when we are walking in conjunction with the Lord and letting the Lord use our lives, whatever is done to the Lord's followers is done directly to Jesus. And Jesus takes it personally. And so whatever happens to the Lord's people, Jesus takes it personally and says, uh, that's happening to me too. And that's why he says, why are you persecuting me? You're perse uh, Saul, do you realize who you're actually persecuting? 
Do you realize the extent of that? Jesus shares together in all of our experiences. So take heart. When you have tough experiences, maybe somebody mocks you for your faith or persecutes you for your Christianity or some bad experience happens. Look, understand, the Lord understands that. He's with you in the experience. He's absorbing the impact of those things as well and wants to help you. And remember as well, that also means that whatever we do for one of the Lord's followers or whatever we do to one of the Lord's followers, it directly impacts Jesus. So you do something wrong and negative and hurtful to one of the Lord's followers, you went a little beyond one of his followers. Just remember that. If you do something good and wonderful and helpful to minister, support, or serve... Jesus says, thanks. That cup of cold water you gave in my name to somebody, to one of my followers, uh, that was like giving a cup of cold water to me. And I appreciate that. And the Lord appreciates what we do in those positive ways as well because he sees himself so unified with us. So Saul has no idea yet because he's not had a revelation from Jesus who this voice from heaven is speaking to him. All he hears is, uh, you are persecuting someone that has way more power than you and as he's cowering in fear from this overpowering light much stronger than him hearing, oh man, somebody's not happy with me. Verse five, he then says as he's overwhelmed by this, who are you, Lord? So what he realizes, this is someone who has way more authority than I do in my life and the power of their brilliance and their glory and their light is overwhelming. So Saul implying that he's yielding in submission, using the word Lord, to one who is in much greater authority than him, he inquires now. He wants to know who this is because he's humbled and being broken. So in a submitted condition, he says, Lord, tell me, who are you? Who am I guilty of sinning against? Who am I guilty of doing this against? Who are you? I want to know who you are. At which point, take note, verse 5, he hears Jesus answer his question. Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I envision Saul at that point going, gulp. Wait a minute. Did I just hear that voice correctly? Who am I persecuting? Who are you that I'm persecuting? Who am I in big trouble with? I'm Jesus. Uh-oh. You mean the... Yeah. Yeah, that Jesus. That Jesus who lived among the earth and ministered and, and, and then died on the cross and everyone saying rose again from the dead and ascended back into heaven and his father... Ooh. That Jesus... I mean, you, can you imagine the impact of that, the overwhelming fear and concern and the humbling experience? <laughs> He's now just been rebuked by Jesus who's revealing himself to him because of a stubborn and hard heart and the path that he's been on. And the Lord breaks through in such a powerful way in this moment. And can I say, I mean, you want to talk about going full throttle on Saul? I mean, but look, that's what, it, that's what Saul needed. That's what Saul needed in his life, giving him direct revelation from heaven with the brilliance of the glory of God. He has a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus gives him an overwhelming sense of clarity of his reality so that he could no way deny it. He knew that he knew that he knew now who Jesus was and what was real. 
because the Lord made it real to him in a way that no human being would need to convince him otherwise of because it was evident that the Lord had revealed himself to him in this powerful personal way and he sees the light literally and he hears from the Lord directly and the reason is because Jesus wants to win Saul's heart over and bring him into submission. So Jesus knows uh, that he identifies Saul had been fighting this battle. Look at the end of verse five. He says to him, Saul, it's hard for you, isn't it? To kick against the goads. He knew that Saul had been resisting for years and he uses a common analogy there of herding animals and working the fields, referring to the goad. The goad was a long wooden stick with a metal point on the end that those who shepherded and herded animals would use to basically poke the hindquarters of an animal to prompt it to go in the direction they wanted it to go. So they would use the goad to poke the backside of the animal to get it to move forward. Or if it was being resistant and sitting back or being rebellious, the goad was used to give it what it needed to, ouch, to get it to move forward. And they get it to move in the right direction. But some animals, as they can be stubborn, would actually kick back against the goads, only harming themselves. Instead of letting the goad prompt them forward, some would fight against it and resist it to their own harm in the resistance. They would kick against the goads. And, and this is the analogy that Jesus used to say, Saul, this is what you've been doing. It's hard for you, isn't it? You've been kicking against the goads. The spirit of the Lord had been goading and prompting Saul, trying to convince his conscience what was true about Jesus, probably since the day that he saw Stephen dying in faith and looking up into heaven and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And, and don't lay the charge of this sin against these people. And, and since that day, I'm convinced that little seed of, uh, of something, of light in his heart, the Spirit of God has been prompting him, and yet Saul, like so many, has been fighting it and resisting it, not wanting to believe that he could actually be wrong, that he could be wrong? Come on. What human being wants to admit that, Right? that he could actually be wrong and that maybe these others who were of the way actually could be right in the things that they were saying. And inwardly, the Spirit's been directing him what was right, yet he's fighting against it. And that's why Jesus says, boy, Saul, that, that's got to be hard for you to keep kicking against and resisting to your own harm personally what you know I'm trying to say to you what I repeatedly have been trying to convince you of year after year. And I think it's a very fitting picture that Jesus uses because that's what goes on inside of a person. To some degree, the unbeliever understands that. And we at one time, when we were unbelievers, we understand that too. The spirit of the Lord's trying to convince us of our sin and that Jesus is the savior and we need Jesus Christ to come into our life and not just religion, but we need a relationship with Christ. And we wrestle through that and we can resist the Holy Spirit and fight against what we know is right to our own harm. And there are those who are unbelievers in this very hour. That's what they're doing. It's, it's a losing battle and it's only a self-destructive path, but they fight against it and they resist against it. Look, can I encourage you, if that's you this morning, just surrender, tap out, man. <laughs> tap out. You don't need more battle wounds. Just submit to Jesus. 
Embrace what the Lord's trying to say. And even as believers, let's be honest with one another, we sometimes can kind of kick against the goats too. As the Spirit of the Lord keeps speaking to us in our lives as we're growing as Christians, sometimes the Lord's trying to tell me what's right. He's trying to show me something and reveal something to me or speak to me about something that he wants me to do or that I need to take care of. And and sometimes we wrestle against that. And sometimes we even kind of start to, to get stubborn and we kind of, the Lord's goading and prompting us and we're, yet we start ignoring what the Lord's trying to tell us and we're kind of kicking against the goads and it's only to our own harm. And if that's happening in any of our lives this morning, can I encourage you in the same way? Submit to the Lord. Respond to what he's trying to tell you. Don't ignore it. It's only to your own harm. The Lord wants to help. Don't resist what he's saying. So knowing Saul's inward condition, Jesus, I say graciously, kind of overpowers him in this moment. It's almost for his own welfare. Jesus says, man, you're a wrestler. But whatever it's going to take, man, I just, I want your best. So here, he just overpowers Saul in this way to humble him, to let him see clearly that Jesus is the Savior and the Lord that he should be submitted to and surrender to. And really, we find this powerful spiritual conversion in Saul's life as he now comes to be a follower of Jesus. Again, this man who was on this trajectory now becomes a servant of Christ. What an amazing thing. The Lord knows, just like Saul, what that process requires in different people's lives. He knew what it took for you to have your Damascus Road experience, right? He knew what it took, and he did it differently in all of our lives to break into our life, to humble us, to help us see the light spiritually and surrender to Jesus. And he knows what it takes for other people as well. And be encouraged by that. Rest in that. And pray to that end. Pray to that end that looking at Saul's experience that the Lord can do that for other people. He knows what it takes. And look, you might even say, well, Lord, I mean, I mean, you're a little late on the ball game. Couldn't you have done that like right after, I mean, second day Saul started the persecutions? I don't understand God's timing, but I know this was his day. And let's let the Lord be in control of when is somebody's day and just trust that he's able to bring them to that day. I love what Paul, who, of course, Saul becomes, later on says in 2 Corinthians 4, he speaks about the gospel being veiled by the minds of those who are blinded by their unbelief in Jesus. And he says this, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the same God who spoke light into existence in creation, Paul says, he can, with his same powerful light, just shine the light into someone's soul in an instant and illuminate all the darkness and bring a complete change and turnaround in their life. And we need to believe the Lord has the power to do that. So Jesus rebukes him for his error here. He's now revealed himself. He now knows who the Lord is. And now we see evidence of his personal belief and his submission expressed in verse 6. He says, I love the statement. It says, verse 6, He trembling and astonished by these things said, verse 6, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now he's completely humbled. He's properly reverent towards the Lord. He's afraid of Jesus' power because he's seen it and he's amazed by his awesomeness. And knowing who Jesus is, notice Saul addresses him as what? Lord. Lord. He now knows who Jesus is because he said, I'm Jesus. And knowing he's Jesus, he says, 
you are now my Lord. And Lord, what would you have me to do? First Corinthians 12 says, no one can refer to Jesus as Lord and mean it apart from the spirit of the Lord. So this is Saul's conversion. The spirit of the Lord has come in. He's making his expression of personal faith, if you would, here on this road, claiming Jesus as Lord. And look, that's the pathway to salvation, the Bible says. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so Saul doing this here in direct submission this day on that road went from someone who once was an enemy and hated Jesus to someone now who becomes one of the greatest devoted servants of Christ. And the Lord just transitions. He says, man, you got a lot of passion, man. You got a, Saul, you got a lot of zeal. I need to take that. I'm going to capture you from the powers of darkness and unleash that for the kingdom of God. And Jesus, by grace, breaks in, brings this transformation as Saul has this encounter. And look how you clearly see the fruit, the evidence of heart change. It's evident there, the proof of his profession of Jesus as his Lord. Look at the first thing he says. It's a question. Verse 6, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's called fruit of conversion. That's called an indication that salvation has truly happened. Not somebody walked forward, prayed a prayer that the pastor told them to pray. Not somebody, you know, uh, you know said, hey, I... It's somebody who the fruit of life change that says, Lord, up to this point, I did what I wanted to do because I was in charge of my life. But when someone encounters the forgiveness of their sin and the power of the Holy Spirit floods into their soul and illuminates them from within and humbles themselves and bows their knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, their savior who died and rose again for them, they come to a place where they say, Lord, I have one concern. What do you want me to do for the rest of my life, Lord? What do you want me to do? Lord, my life is now yours. I don't want to do what I want to do anymore. I want to do whatever you want me to do because you are now my master. You are now my ruler. It's no longer my way. It's your way. Please instruct me. Guide me. I'm your servant. Lord, show me what do you want me to do? What a beautiful picture of submission here. What a beautiful picture of salvation and, and lordship demonstrated in such a glorious way. That should be where our heart is at. If we're professing Jesus as Savior and Lord, that really is where our heart should be drawn towards. Where we are a people who by nature say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do, Lord? My life is yours. It's not mine anymore. I don't want to do what what my will is anymore. I want to know what your will and your way is, not just claiming Jesus as Lord with our mouths, but relating to Jesus as he's the Lord by how we live out our life in relation to him. That, that we yield ourselves. Saul is humbled, submits himself to Jesus as Lord, asking what he would have him to do. And Jesus gives him his first instruction there in verse 6. He answers him, arise, go into the city, and you will be told 
what you must do. So he's told, arise, go into the city, and then you'll get further instruction. He gets one simple command. You want to know what I want you to do? Here's one step. Do this one thing. Arise from the ground. No longer be fearful. Go into the city. And when you get there, you will get next step further information. You will be told, Jesus said, what you must do. Notice servants are not given options or suggestions. They're told what they must do. That's servanthood. That's submitting to mastery and lordship. You'll be told what you must do. Saul's learning and will learn to let Jesus now be in charge and tell him what to do instead of Saul doing what he wants to do or he feels like doing or he thinks that he should do. He's learning how to find out, Jesus, what do you want me to do so the Lord has his way and can just use Saul's obedience to direct him for what he wants for his life. This beautifully pictures how the Lord seeks to work in all of our lives who relate to Jesus as Lord. The the same should be true for us. He leads us by progressive revelation. Do you ever notice that? Just like Saul here, what do you want me to do? I mean, this guy wants a whole new, his whole life just turned around. He submitted now to Jesus. He's enthusiastic. Lord, what do you want me to do? He gets one instruction, get up, go to the city. Then you'll be told what you must do. He gets one step. But that's how the Lord leads us often in our lives. Once you do this one thing, Tony, then I'll tell you what you need to do next. Maybe maybe it's just for me, not for you. Part of it is because that's how dense I am. I can handle about one instruction at a time. I mean, I'm forever you know, trying to confess that sin to my wife. Just like, just, that's two steps, please. I can't, my brain can't multitask. I live with four women, you know, they can have spider web seven conversations going at once and it all ties back together in the end. And I'm going, what conversation are we in? Just, can we finish the first one? And, and, but I just, I'm not, it's hard. But a lot of us as sheep, that's our struggle. The Lord says, look, one step. Do one thing at a time. I asked you to do this. Did you obey me yet? Do one thing, and when we do the one thing the Lord asks us to do, then a lot of times that's when the next step comes. That's also living by faith. He keeps us walking and living by faith. And servants, again, as I said, are told what we must do. We're not given suggestions. You will be told what you must do. The implication there, that that we humbly submit, we comply in faith, and we learn that Jesus' lordship is about just doing whatever he says. No excuses, no offering our suggestions, no rationalizing, debating with the Lord. But Lord, but do you, but Lord, but and he just, servant, servant, you do what you must do because you're a servant. That's what lordship really is. If we're going to walk it out, it's letting the Lord have his way in my life, in anything. That means that I evaluate, you approach, we handle every situation by saying, Lord, in this situation, what would you have me to do? Try living that way this week. Lord, in this situation, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? Jesus illustrates very beautifully what servanthood and mastery is like. Jot in your notes, perhaps Luke 17, verse 7 to 10. Great story there. I encourage you to read it because it beautifully illustrates that very analogy. Look how the text concludes these last few verses. It says, The men who were journeying with him 
stood speechless. They knew something powerful happened, hearing a voice but seeing no one. So as Saul's having this personal encounter, his traveling companions can tell something radical is happening. They can tell something is happening with Saul. It says there, though they're not directly involved, that they did hear a voice, but they didn't see what Saul did. But they can tell something powerfully nonetheless to where it leaves them shocked and speechless. They can't deny something supernatural just happened in Saul's life. Verse 8 says, Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. Implying Saul was so humbled by the experience down on the ground, his knees or his face, we're not sure, that when he opened his eyes after all this happens and the light goes away, he literally was temporarily blinded by this experience to where now he cannot see because of the glory of the brilliance of God in this moment. He's being so incapacitated, look what happens, verse 8. It says, but they, his companions, had to lead him by the hand and they brought him to Damascus and he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So look what happens here. This man, consider this, who was once so stubborn, so adamant, is now broken and weakened completely. The Lord allows him to be temporarily blinded in this situation in such a way, what in a picture there, that he went from aggressively driving this caravan and he is going to push it in whatever way he wants to push it because that's Saul's personality. And now he is so broken and humbled like a little child. He has to put out his hand and say, can you please take me to Damascus? I don't know how to get there. I need to be led. And like a little child now, he's having to be led by the hand in utter humility by others to help him in this situation. Again, beautifully broken by the Lord. Broken by the Lord. This complete transition. What a painful but beautiful place to be brought to, right? When a human being is stripped bare so that they can be rebuilt better by Jesus. That's what's happening here. And that's what the Lord still does so often in our lives. And we'll see in the next verses ahead, that's what he begins to do in Saul's life. And what a beautiful picture of the Lord intervening into a person's life to convert their soul. How precious to see that Jesus can graciously intervene and win a person owner and calling them personally by name, Saul, Saul. He just calls them right by name in such a personal, direct way. I'll tell you something, the Lord is still in the name calling business. He really is. He's still in the name-calling business, wanting to personally speak to people. You may be in this room this morning, and in some way, Jesus is calling you out by name. And he's saying to you, it's your time. It's your time. It's your time to respond to me. Stop resisting me. It's true. It's all real. Believe it. Respond. Yield. Submit. And he's calling you by name. And he wants you to respond. It's in your best interest to do that. And he has powerful ways to get people's attention, does he not? I'm so thankful that the Lord can break us as needed because, again, the good news is that a broken life becomes more valuable in the hands of God. Let's stand together.